Good evening. I had all my best jokes and none of you heard it. I can't believe it. Oh, well. Uh, just, I'm going to introduce a storyteller, but just a comment. Uh, this song, Is He Worthy? Uh, really brings me back to my grad school days when I was studying theology and learning about the theology of worship. And worship is kind of short for worth-ship, meaning that as God reveals his worthiness to us, we naturally respond, and that response is called worship. And so I really appreciate the, sort of the solid theology of this song. And uh, if you are here and you don't believe God's worthy, you can ask, well, who is worthy? And I uh, can't find anyone, so it might be God. It might be God. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. I can say so many good things about Joy, and, uh, but here are a couple of things that I just really appreciate about Joy. She reminds me of the Proverbs 31 woman, just a woman uh, filled with poise and wisdom and love. I went to executive coaching school to learn how to ask questions. And I still can't do it as good as Joy. She's so solidly focused on other people and able to be curious and inquire about who they are and how she can be connected to that other person. So I really appreciate all of these things about Joy. But more than anything else, she single-handedly saved Jim Zorn's life by marrying him. I shudder to think where he'd be without Joy. So he's got the Joy, 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 Joy. Joy, come on up. <laughs> ah, <clears throat> well, good evening. Uh, my husband, Jim, has always loved motorcycles and yet never owned one. So a couple of years ago, he began talking about us motorcycling together. Well, I'm honored he still wants to hang out with me, even after almost 40 years of marriage. I was not very excited at the thought of sitting on the back of a motorcycle. Now, kayaking, paddleboarding, you know, that other kind of biking together. Yeah, but motorcycling? However, in a weak moment, I suggested that maybe we could combine my desire to go to Europe with his desire to motorcycle together because I figured renting one for one week was way better than him buying one for life. So <clears throat> that's how I ended up on the back of a motorcycle for a week in Eastern Europe. Now, for a person who prefers certainty and predictability, low risk, how would you imagine I felt sitting on the back of a motorcycle touring 1,200 miles through five foreign countries? Well, I'll tell you. I felt tense, vulnerable, scared, and sometimes even a little cold. Meanwhile, Jim was having the time of his life, absolutely loving it. And in reality, he was very competent and capable in handling the bike. He wasn't so much the source of my anxiety, it was all of those what-ifs that compelled me to close my eyes on a regular basis. For example, what if our motorcycle skids off the road while navigating around one of the 54 numbered hairpin turns on this mountain pass in Slovenia? That one is number 43, I think. Or 
what if we get in an accident trying to get around one of the billion trucks on the road to Budapest? Especially since glancing over Jim's shoulder at the GPS, I could see he was driving over the speed limit. And what if this happens to us? And what exactly is that sign that we just sped by warning us of anyway? And actually, someone Googled this for me, and it means, in case you're not fluent in Slovenian, it means dangerous road section. But uh, I did, we didn't know that at the time. For sure, Jim didn't know what it meant. So after some time of sitting on the back of the bike in stiff tension and anxiety, I decided that something had to change, or I would ruin the trip for myself and for sure create a lot of tension between Jim and me. You see, for me, getting on that bike every day meant facing that uncomfortable uncertainty over and over again. Yet my highly energized by risk husband just didn't get it because he wasn't experiencing that at all. So it occurred to me that I needed to look beyond the GPS, beyond the what ifs, and even beyond Jim, and I had to practice putting my trust entirely in Almighty God and his love and care for me. And this was a great exercise in renewing my mind with truth. I ran worst case scenarios through my mind, counterbalancing them with what I knew to be true. So for example, if I get flung off the back of this motorcycle and roll down that cliff, I'll probably die. But God has promised to be with me and my family at home as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Or if that truck that is oh so close to us somehow sucks our motorcycle underneath it, we'll get injured badly and we'll have to go in a foreign ambulance to a hospital where they don't speak English, but God has promised that he will never leave or forsake me. And I had plenty of time to rehearse truths like these that I knew from scripture as I sat on the back of that motorcycle for six days, around five hours a day. And once in a while, I was even able to open my eyes and relax my death grip. Now, don't get me wrong. I thoroughly enjoyed all the wonderful places we visited and the delightful people that we met once I was off the, boat, the bike. It was just most of the on motorcycle piece that I struggled with. Well, as you can imagine, I felt considerable relief and deep gratitude the day we got off the bike in Venice and turned it back in. And yet, I think my joy was heightened by the realization that my trusting God and his love for me had grown deeper and sweeter through this week's experience. Will I still be stressed and fearful the next time I'm faced with uncertainty? Oh, probably. In fact, yes, most likely. But perhaps I won't dwell in the midst of all those what-ifs for quite as long before remembering what is. While on the back of that motorcycle, I learned all over again that if I choose to live grounded in the good, 
powerful and faithful God of the Bible, he becomes the reality who anchors and sustains me, even in the midst of uncertain circumstances. I'd like to close with a short excerpt that sums this up so much better than I can. It's appropriately entitled, The Graciousness of Uncertainty by Oswald Chambers. And he writes, Certainty is the mark of a common sense life. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means we are uncertain in all our ways. We do not know what a day may bring forth. This is generally said with a sigh of sadness, but it should be rather an expression of breathless expectation. We are uncertain of the next step, but we are certain of God. Immediately we abandon to God and do the duty that lies the nearest. He packs our life with surprises all the time. We are not uncertain of God, but uncertain of what he is going to do next. When we are rightly related to God, life is full of joyful uncertainty and expectancy. Believe also in me, said Jesus, not believe certain things about me. Leave the whole thing to him. It is gloriously uncertain how he will come in, but he will come. Thank you for listening to my story. This evening, our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 5, verses 12 through 28 in the New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. And live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord.
Good afternoon. I'm Julie Steele. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen, and I am so glad to be here to share with you this evening. It is it is a really strange feeling, isn't it, to be here in the evening for this? And then next Sunday, we'll have been used to it, and then we'll all be off, you know, coming in the morning, so you just can't win, right? Well, I am anxious to share with you this evening, and as we've been looking at Thessalonians, this is the second week we read it, and we are on chapter 5, and our message is how to be. So Paul is telling the Thessalonians how to be, and we'll find out what that is. But as I got to thinking about this letter that Paul wrote to the church, I was thinking about how we don't really write letters very much anymore, right? We, we do texting, we do emailing, but very few times do we actually get a letter in the mail. Well, it got me thinking about this family letter that I discovered a few years ago when I was down in Arizona with my mom. It was a letter that it's become kind of a funny joke in our family now. It was written by my grandmother to my mom and dad who were living in Georgia at the time because my dad was in the army. And you're going to find out when you hear this why I love this letter because it validates something that I have loved for a long time and now I know why. So it says, Dear Elaine and Jim, my mom and dad, well, it's a nice sunny day and I'm glad as I have to go over to Hammond for a little while. This is northern Indiana. Today is dad's birthday, so I will have to bake him a cake when I come home. We were at Graham's for Thursday for her birthday and did we ever have the cake? I made angel food, Flory made golden cake and upside down cake, and Bernie brought a chocolate cake. That's four cakes in one birthday. We took Graham over to Robert Hall and bought her a new spring coat. It's gray trimmed with navy. I think it's the first spring coat she has ever gotten because she's always had hand-me-downs. Graham had made some good potato salad and ham. Dad had his wisdom teeth pulled yesterday and his whole mouth has to be x-rayed because it's infected, but the doctor said it could wait a little while. Tomorrow we are going over to Marge's for a turkey dinner. I told them I would bring a chocolate cake, so I will have to take cake tomorrow again. It's the joke because I love cake. This is six cakes in four days, people. Do you understand this? This is like, wow, I am nothing compared to that. But we just had to laugh because I said, I guess it's just in my system. I can't get away from it. Well, Paul did not write about cake to the Thessalonians. He wrote a letter to these uh, Thessalonians, and he wrote it specifically to the whole church body, not just to the leadership. And the reason that this is is because he wanted all of the people to hear his words. And when you read Paul's letters to other churches, you have to ask the question, what was going on in this church that he needed to address certain issues? You see, the church was new, and they were trying to figure out what a healthy follower of Christ looked like, and really what a healthy Christian church looked like. Think about this. Everyone was a new convert. There weren't generations of wisdom to draw on like we have here. Churches can go off the rails very quickly, and they do without some clear guidance. Well, the Thessalonians faced persecution from the Jews and from pagan communities. Persecution can make you vulnerable. It can cause you to turn back to your old ways under stress and pressure, and he wanted to make sure that they weren't going to be doing that. He was concerned for their health as individuals and their health as a Christian community. 
His letters to these new churches were kind of like a live your best life, but in Paul's case, live your best Christian life. How many of you are familiar with the live your best life feed on Instagram? Oh my goodness, I thought all of these young people would be. Okay, (laughs) that makes me feel better because I had to read into it. Well, this is a new uh, movement, evidently, and it's about people posting what they think their best life is on Instagram. It's pretty shallow. Rebecca Turnbull, a clinical counselor, said that the best life criteria was, quote, get up before sunrise, extra points if you catch the sunrise on a hike or a run, slurp back some green juice with your avocado toast, Then go back to your work in your minimalist home for a company you believe is making a difference. Well, I don't know about your best life, but my best life would be very different from that. My best life would be posting a picture of me in the sunshine and have it be really hot and warm, eating cake, of course, and playing with Annabelle and Mary. Hashtag my best life. Well, here's what this movement shows me. We're all looking for how we can be in this world, how to live our best life right now, how we can experience healthy relationships, how we can just enjoy today. Well, in our scripture today, Paul is prescribing 17 concrete how-tos to have healthy relationships with each other and a healthy relationship with God. Now, we're not going to go into detail with all of these, so hopefully you're going to look them up on your own when you go home, but we're going, to, we're going to do a few. So here we have his beginning here with church leaders. Now, since he brought it up, there must have been an issue with the congregation and how they were treating their church leaders. He says they deserve our respect and our wholehearted love. Now, I know that I am one of your leaders, but I, too, have leaders over me. I am under the authority of the church leadership, the conference that we have here, and our national denomination. We don't always agree with decisions that are made on our behalf, but we are called to respect and love our leaders who work on our behalf. I can tell you that our leadership team takes this role very seriously and spends countless hours on your behalf and my behalf. And we have hardworking ministry team leaders who serve here on your behalf. I would challenge you to pray for and encourage these people because most of what they do is not seen. Now, the last sentence here says, live peacefully with each other. This is a hint that there was probably disorder in the church because of their lack of respect for their leaders. Now, there's a few different words used for the word lazy here. It says, warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient. Some translations use the word idle instead of lazy. Now, this could be referring to the lack of engagement in the congregation. Sounds kind of like they may have invented the 80-20 rule. 80% of the people doing 20% of the work. 
Well, the body of Christ is made up of many members, all doing their part so that the body is healthy and functioning. That's God's plan for the church. So I ask the question, are you engaged in ministry? This applies to your time and your money. That's being engaged in ministry. God has gifted each one of us with spiritual gifts so that we can build up the body of Christ. He says that leaders are to equip the saints for ministry. Why? Because we need something done? No, because God needs something done, and he wants all of us to be a part of it. I can tell you from personal experience that exercising your spiritual gift and being a cheerful giver are the most rewarding things that you can do. As a lay leader many years ago, it was when I jumped in to teach a Bible study and teach Sunday school that I became spiritually healthy and alive. I experienced meaning and purpose in a way that I hadn't before. And just so you know, I did not feel equipped to do either of those things. However, others saw something in me, and they came alongside me, and they mentored me. Now, verse 15 says to not pay back evil for evil. Our human nature is to retaliate, is it not? Be honest. Have you ever done this before? I have. The story that comes to mind for me was when I was about 10 or 11, my older brother and I retaliated against my little sister and my cousin. Here's what was going on. We had leftover pizza in the refrigerator, and my brother and I were going to go heat it up for our lunch. However, my sister and my cousin got there first. What were we supposed to do? Just let them enjoy the pizza? I think not. My brother, though, not me, had this idea to sprinkle a fair amount of Tabasco sauce on the pizza before they ate it. Because you see, if we couldn't eat it, we wanted to make sure they couldn't eat it either. That was payback. Now, I want you to notice the verbs that are in these uh, verses here. Encourage, take tender care, do good, be patient. This is how we are to be with others. Now, these next set of verses talk about how we are to be with God. And I think to always be joyful, to never stop praying and being thankful in all circumstances, that all three of those are connected. You can't really have one without the other two. So always being joyful, as Joy talked about on her motorcycle trip, does not mean that you need to put a happy face on, like we all usually do here on Sunday mornings, right? How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. And you're really not fine. You're putting on the happy face. It means to continue, though, to praise God and enjoy God's presence even when circumstances around you are difficult. When we stop finding joy in God, our faith has been distracted and our focus has shifted from God to ourselves. And then praying continually keeps our focus on God. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I pray. 
I'm wise enough to know that I don't know anything and that I need God's perspective or I'm going to fall apart. Our focus gives us the right perspective, a perspective that gives us confidence that God's will really is in our best interest. This is an eternal perspective. Choosing to put our focus on God in all circumstances is a healthy way to be, and it helps us lead our best life. He doesn't say, thank God for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. Thanking God for a cancer diagnosis is ridiculous. Thanking God that he is with you in it and will give you the strength you need, that's what Paul is saying here, and these are very different things. The first, thanking God for the circumstance, is mindless. The second is being mindful. And we are not to suppress the Holy Spirit. There we go. We are not to suppress the Holy Spirit within us. Don't minimize what is spoken as of from being God. Examine and test what is taught and hold on to what is good and true. Now, it seems that the Thessalonian congregation may have been either ignoring doctrinal teaching or accepting it without testing it. Both are equally unhealthy for a church. And verses 23 to 24 They are a benediction and a prayer for God's sanctifying power to make them holy in every way, spirit, soul, and body, because God wants our whole being healthy. Now, in his closing remarks, there we go, Paul asks for prayer and commands that this letter be read to everyone because clearly he wants the entire community on the same page with what he is saying here. Well, we just covered a lot of how-to-bes. I don't know about you, but this list can overwhelm me, because it all looks good on paper, but living it out in real life, that's a very different thing. It's a hard way to live. It's a hard way to be. I think we all have at least a few of these that we struggle with. Maybe you have trouble showing respect for leaders. Or you want to take revenge on someone who has deeply hurt you. And they might even deserve it. Maybe it's hard to be joyful and thankful in your circumstances. This is a constant issue for me. I'm kind of a complainer. And I whine about how things are and why isn't God changing things. But sometimes it's our circumstances that seem to prove that God doesn't care because we think, why would he allow such things? But that's where fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith comes in. You know how they say, location, location, location. Well, for us as Christians, it's perspective, perspective, perspective. Try saying that really fast. Our focus dictates our perspective. So how can we possibly follow this prescription on how to be? I fail at all 17 things on this list. But the good news is we don't have to. It's not about us. It's not about 
our efforts. God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. When we are not faithful, he is faithful. When we desire to be holy and blameless, God is faithful to work in us. Now, Joy quoted Oswald Chambers, and I guess he is the man of the day because I am going to do the same. A few weeks ago, I shared with you from My Utmost for His Highest, the devotional that I started this year that has been so meaningful to me. And I'm going to read to you something called Identified or Simply Interested from March 21st. Quote, the inescapable spiritual need each of us has is the need to sign the death certificate of our sin nature. I must take my emotional opinions and intellectual beliefs and be willing to turn them into a moral verdict against the nature of sin. That is against any claim I have to my right to myself. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. He did not say, I have made a determination to imitate Jesus Christ, or I will really make an effort to follow him. But I have been identified with him in his death. Once I reach this moral decision and act on it, all that Christ accomplished for me on the cross is accomplished in me. My unrestrained commitment of myself to God gives the Holy Spirit the opportunity to grant to me the holiness of Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live. My individuality remains, but my primary motivation for living and the nature that rules me is radically changed. I have the same human body, but the old satanic right to myself has been destroyed. You see, what he is saying here is that The identification with Christ and his death on the cross is the power that gives me and you the ability to follow the how-to-bees that Paul has listed here. It is not from ourselves. We can't just try harder. I know I can't. It is the power of Christ's death on the cross and taking on my sin that allows me to live this new life a life that reflects the character of Christ and not my old human character that wants revenge, that isn't patient, that isn't kind, that isn't respectful, and the list goes on and on. Now, as we went through these verses here, which did you identify as a point of struggle for you? Was it lack of engagement in God's work? Was it lack of patience? or respect. Maybe joy is eluding you because you are more focused on God changing your circumstances than seeing him work in them. Today, you will have an opportunity to respond in a very concrete way. During the season of Lent, it is customary to take time for confession. This practice readies us for the coming of Easter and makes us keenly aware of our need for a Savior. This afternoon, for our time of confession, you are invited to take the slip of paper that you have been sitting with in your row, and there are pens there. I'm going to warn you that you need to prep them because 
mine took a minute to get going. But you're going to take those, and you're going to write down something, maybe it's something you heard today or something else that God is bringing to your mind that distracts you from your relationship with God. Something you know needs to change in order to have a more authentic and meaningful faith. A faith that has you identifying with Christ and not just simply interested in him. Once you have written down your confession, you are invited to bring it forward and put it either in, there is a box down on the bench, and there are also tacks that you can tack them to the cross. No one will be reading these. This is between you and God. Katie will be leading us in a song of reflection while you are doing that. And when we are done, we will close with a word of prayer. So I invite you to think about what God is calling you to right now and come forward and put it on the cross or in the box and let it go and walk away. Let's pray. <clears throat> Merciful God, we are on our Lenten journey with our eyes fixed on the cross. Purify our hearts, our minds, and lives that we may more faithfully walk with you. We confess the ways we live for our own good and our own glory, and we pray for your forgiveness and grace. We trust in your promise that in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to us and sustain us on our journey to the cross. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen.